When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name's Sarah and I'm an assistant editor at Prospect and I also write the magazine's Mindful Life column about mental health. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Jane O'Grady, a writer, reviewer, the philosophy obituarist for The Guardian and a lecturer at the London School of Philosophy to discuss whether the ancient Greeks can teach us anything about how to live. Jane wrote a really interesting essay for our summer double issue of the magazine about a recent spate of books that mix classical philosophy and self-help. First of all, Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you. Um, In the course of this podcast, we're going to be using a lot of Greek names, um, particularly for philosophers. I wondered if you would mind just telling us a little bit about some of the philosophers that we'll be speaking about today for those of us who have no idea. Well, perhaps mainly about the Stoics, because they're the ones who've been sort of co-opted by by the self-help people. And they, I mean, Stoicism, as as a very important philosophy, lasted for a hell of a long time, from about 300 BCE to 500 CE and and it was influential on on a lot of people and it was really but this is this is where it's strange that it's in a way quite different from self-help because it is about helping the self but helping the self by making the individual feel not so special and i think that that's that could be a great aid to mental health i mean in a way it's saying What's so special about you, mate? You know, why, I mean, as Massimo Pigliucci, who's written a book about the Stoics, said, I mean, you know, it's, it's why do you think that you're the darling of the universe or deserve to be? And so it's really, it's in a way doing the opposite of some of the self-help things. It's saying, A, who the hell do you think you are? B, don't let all your feelings out. Don't, don't you know, that sort of hydraulic metaphor which we've had since Freud and perhaps before, you know, where, where you have emotions building up, there's a huge pressure, you need to let them out. The Stoics are very keen on actually preempting, in the proper sense of that word, forestalling and preventing the emotions that you might have. So they allow you to have, I mean, it varies from Stoic to Stoic, what they call 
bites or first movements or, I mean, what I mean is they say, well, you can't help blushing. If somebody waggles your, the, their fingers in front of your eyes, you can't help flinching. But the point is, do you decide that this particular feeling that you've got merits assent? Shouldn't you just, in a way, say, well, there's no big deal about it? And and in a in a way, one so you shouldn't really, in other words, they say, be consent to the appearances, the fantasy. And one wants to say, well, look, but they are bloody appearances. I mean, you know, if if your your sister's very ill or something, that's not an appearance; it's reality. And how can it not affect you? But what they say is what what Democritus, who is one of them, said to the king of Persia who was bereaved and sought his guidance. And Democritus said, find three of your subjects who are also bereaved. In other words, it isn't only you. <laughs> and I, th I think that's, that's something that I don't know what you think, Sarah, but that, that's something that is worth bearing in mind in mental health, not making oneself the centre of the universe, which is very hard not to do when you're mentally disturbed. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I know that in Oliver Berkman's book, The Antidote, he talks a lot about the Stoics and his book is kind of focusing on all the, what he describes as negative thinkers and how they can help with mental health and he kind of classifies the Stoics as one of his negative thinkers as opposed to the positive thinkers who are recommending that you try and think positively and that having positive thoughts can make you more well. Why does he... I, I'm interested that, 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 that he says they're negative thinkers because, in a way, he's... I mean, you know, Shakespeare sums it up in Hamlet. He'd obviously done some reading on the Stoics. When Hamlet says, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. I mean, the point is that what the Stoics are saying is you can't be harmed except by your reaction to what you think harms you. If you, if you, if you think that it's harmful, then yes, of course, it will be harmful. And so in a way, why does that count as negative thinking rather than positive thinking? I haven't read Berkman's book, but, but why does it not count as positive thinking that, well, you know, there's not, there isn't a reason to, for you to be perturbed. I think I'm, I'm in danger of misappropriating what Berkman said. So this is based on a reading of it from a long time ago. So I might be wrong in that, whether he actually described them as negative. I think it's probably more nuanced in how he describes it. But I think what he's getting at is the fact that they acknowledge that there is suffering and that that's part of the human existence, rather than that we should try and look through a rose-tinted lens at the world. I think that's what he means by negative, rather than that they assume that life is always going to be bad or anything like that. I suppose I see. And also, I suppose it's it's negative maybe in the way that it's a bit self-abnegating. It's a bit saying, you know, here's the universe. You're just a tiny little fragment of it. Just fit in. Yeah, so, so, so in that, it's not, it's not saying have self-esteem. Yes, exactly. This is absolutely fascinating that we're already kind of applying Greek ideas to where we are today, but just taking one step backwards for a moment. In your review, you discuss several different books. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what each of these books is about. So one of them is An Epicurean Guide to Life by Emily Austin. What's An Epicurean Guide to Life? Well, it's funny because the way we use the adjective Epicurean now, or the or the noun Epicureanism, it's it's sort of about um, having having being hedonistic, you know, living for pleasure, just having boxes of chocolates and lots of sex. But but in fact, Epicurus had a had a much more nuanced idea of, of happiness. I mean, he just felt that actually you shouldn't 
indulge immediate pleasures, but think in the long term. So, you know, don't just, I mean, you'd say, don't just sit and watch television, though you feel like doing it. Get on with the article that you've got to do for tomorrow. <laughs> and I need then in the <laughs> exactly. I mean, and 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 it's that it's that sort of so Epicureanism isn't self indulgence. It's it's actually admittedly it's self centered because because it's saying you know you want to be happy, but for goodness sake, just go about it in the right way. Don't be silly. Don't 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 do things that in the long run are going to harm you. And when we're looking back at this period, where does um, Epicureanism fit in in terms of historically? The Stoics go on such a long time, about 800 years, that Epicurus is sort of somewhere not in the middle, but, but after some Stoics and before others. He's not a Stoic, you know. I mean, he's, he's especially saying pleasure is good. But even he wants what the Stoics want, which is ataraxia, which is a sort of a state of calm, but what the Stoics want in addition is apatheia, absence of emotion. Pate was, is, uh, well, it can't quite be translated. It's anachronistic to, to translate it as emotion. It, it more means a sort of feeling and, uh, you know, a sensation type feeling. But, but at the same time, they thought that emotions were cognitive as well. They were sort of involved judgments. And so... You've got to be free of not just the sensations, but of the judgments that the sensations are merited because something bad is going on. You've got to actually just stop emotions at the source. And somebody like Seneca divides, you know, who was who was living sort of on the cusp of of well, just after Christ, really. I mean, just well during Christ. He's actually saying that you have what he calls sometimes agitations or first movements. As I say, things like blushing or flinching or turning pale, maybe. Um, but it's then that you have to not be complicit with, with these bodily sensations, but actually prevent them. But if you are complicit, the next step will be that you're carried away. So emotions are a sort of three-stage process. Yeah. And so why do you think there is this publishing trend where suddenly a series of writers are writing what are essentially self-help books based around Greek philosophers? Yeah, that's such a good question. Well, I mean, first of all, Jules Evans wrote a very good book about how Stoicism had indirectly helped him. He, he, you know, he, he attributed cognitive behavioural therapy to basically Stoic principles. And he'd been all over the place, and he said, you know, that it saved his life, CBT. And then he then he sort of looked up the Stoics and got interested in them. Interestingly, though, he, having been this great proponent of Stoicism, he then abdicated. I mean, he said, "Look, I'm actually rather tired of all this self mastery, and I want to go back to the sort of to the ecstasy." So I don't know where he is now, but I think that's what. Personally, I've never been attracted to the Stoics because this idea of not having feelings at all and sort of always being in control seems to miss out on some great things in life. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so somebody like Marcus Aurelius, who was actually an emperor, was, was saying this also about food and sex. I mean, he's just saying, you know, what's, what's the big deal about sex? It's just sort of plucking a gut 
and and what's what's a well you could say the same about a violin i mean you know a violin is plucking a gut but but with a great violinist you're you're in ecstasy so anyway i won't elaborate that that simile but but so there is something i find a bit joyless about them a bit i don't want to be to stereotype but a bit masculine a bit sort of up themselves yeah. and arrogant yeah. um you know it's this this self-mastery, this big deal about self-mastery, and how do it also treats other people as being, in a way, part of what you've got to avoid and master. I mean, what, what I mean is that you're not supposed to get angry. You're supposed, you know, which is a good idea. Yeah. I can see. So that's opposed to the, the, the sort of our contemporary idea. Oh, you must let your feelings out. Well, actually, letting your angry feelings out is often the very worst thing to do because you'll be responded to with greater anger, to which you'll re respond with even greater anger. And so it escalates perhaps into an even physical fight, if, if you, especially if you're masculine. But, but he's saying, look, just cut the anger off at source. Don't be angry with somebody who's insulted you. Don't just let it go. And that seems to me a recipe for quietism, for passivity. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that I would have counselled my mother. Don't be stoical. Stand up to that bastard. You know, my father. Um, to be stoical in that way, and it's funny because they weren't quietist themselves. I mean, they, they were involved in politics and things, but it seems as if they're recommending this sort of self-abdication, this sort of passivity in, in, in the face of retaliation and, and so on. I mean, not so that they, they, were, they were supposed not to retaliate, not to be angry back. And, and, and that's really treating other people as sort of stones in your way, rather than the fact that we are porous to other people. So Epictetus, one of the great Stoics, said, you know, that if your child dies, you have to say, I always knew he was mortal. And that seems, and, and in another place he says, well, you have to just think, you know, that your wife, your child and your jug have been given to you. If they die or get broken, well, you know, that, that just, just say, well, they're being given back. And and that seems, again, rather heartless. Yeah. So it seems like there's a bit of a longer history of stoicism being of interest in terms of self-help, in terms of people living their lives. I know I've read books that have referred to that, for example, Oliver Berkman's. But in your essay, you seem to be writing about a broader range of Greek philosophers that are now inspiring self-help books. For example, Adam Nicholson's book, why do you think, on a more broad level, writers and publishers are turning to Greek philosophers at this moment in time to write self-help books? Very interesting questions. I mean, I just think, and I've said it in, in, in the review, I think it's quite inappropriate, not in the sort of not in not in a sort of condemnatory way, but just it's just unsuitable that to have a book called how to be, which is about the pre-Socratics. Because the pre-Socratics, you know, were at the dawn of Western philosophy, which was precisely not about how to be. It was how the universe was. That's what they were interested in. So they, they don't... Well, I mean, it's not entirely true. Obviously, they do say things about how, for instance, we fit into the universe. But that's rather different from sort of concentrating on our feelings and everything. Of course, you'll find all sorts of wonderful... You know, Heraclitus, who's a fantastic pre-Socratic, does say very interesting things. It's, it's not good to be angry because... What 
psyche buys, it buys at the price of anger. But anyway, so, so they do say things occasionally about the self or about how to live. But, but it's just, it's very odd to call a book how to be. And he doesn't actually give us any clue as to what he means by the pre-Socratics telling us how to live, how to be or whatever. And he doesn't, it's also a bit anachronistic. And th I think that's one of the problems of these self-help books. I mean, that they're, they're seeing these past philosophies, like the Stoics, like the pre-Socratics, through the lens of modernity. And, and th that means, and it's especially bad for a historian to do that, because it means that they're guilty of what's called presentism. And that seems an odd sin now, when we're especially trying to respect diversity. I mean, don't to try and amalgamate Stoicism into now, use Stoicism, appeal to Stoicism, but to actually equate the Stoics with self-help is, is a big mistake. Or to say that, you know, the pre-Socratic say certain things about the self, is, it's, that's totally misleading because th there wasn't really such a thing as the self at that point. Do you see what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's just out of sync with time. Do you think in a strange way that explains the appeal to us in the modern day of these ideas? Because we now in a culture that is so focused on the individual, the self, and in terms of capitalism and kind of improving the lot of the self, do you think that is why writers on self-help are turning back to these ideas? That's interesting. I mean, I can see stoicism it seems to me, would fit in well with capitalism. I think that, that, that Seneca says, look, actually, it's completely fine for a, for a Stoic philosopher to get rich, which he did. But, you know, that's true. But, but, do, you see, but do you see this that central paradox that in the name of almost getting rid of themselves and getting rid of their feelings... They're concentrating on themselves. I mean, I, I, St. Augustine, I mean, if you <laughs> saint, you know, Augustine writing in, in, the, in the fourth century is saying, well, you know, actually, whether you call things advantages or goods, like as the, most of us do, or deny that there are such things as advantages and goods. It's just a matter of terminology. That The Stoics are just as keen on advantages and benefits as everybody else. So it sounds to me, from everything we've been talking about, that the Greek philosophers had a very complicated and nuanced understanding of these issues, and that what you're arguing in your piece is that some of these self-help books condense those, they misappropriate those, they place yeah. them out of historical yeah. context, and they're not an accurate representation of those thinkers. I guess my next question is, does that matter? If people find <laughs> yeah. these books helpful, even if they're not really an accurate representation of the ideas, is that important? Well, maybe I'm being a bit priggish and pedantic, but and also being sort of, as it were, trying to hold on to my own preserve. But, but it seems to me that philosophy can often be debased and watered down and made really pretty insignificant so that, that people think, what the hell is the point of that? I mean, if it's just, you know, well, live your best life and, and you know, and occasionally reach out to people. I'm just using sort of common cliches. I mean, why bother to call it philosophy? You know, ph philosophy is the love of wisdom. And I think, of course, one of the main things to which philosophy is pledged is truth, <laughs> you know, a concept that, 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 that seems very much up for grabs at the moment. And therefore, 
Yes, it's about human life or has been since Plato, but it's actually about finding out the truth about who we are, how we fit into the universe and what the hell the universe is. Science is just an offshoot from philosophy. After the break, we'll talk more about the books that argue we should live our lives according to classical philosophy. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I think perhaps one example of what you're saying that is really stark is the fact that there's been a new abridged translation of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, which has been called How to Flourish, an Ancient Guide to Living Well. What do you make of that? Well, it's a terrible confession. I haven't looked at this book, but it's very funny. I think that that Aristotle wrote his Nicomachean Ethics really for young, rich men. And and he actually says what he's writing about, it's ethics rather than than morality. He's writing about how to flourish. You know, he wants us to attain eudaimonia, which has been translated happiness, but that's a bit of a mistranslation. It's more flourishing, flourishing, living to the top of your bent, really. You know, which again, you could say, oh, that sounds like self-help. But he actually says, well, I'm afraid that if you're ugly, poor, solitary and childless, don't bother. Yeah. I mean, so you see, it's not, it's by no means... D- democratic or, or, or in- inclusive. He's, he's writing, he's writing for young men that to the probably his students at the Academia. And he's also writing, it's, it's again very interesting, contrasting what he considers to be the virtues and what, you know, we're all post-Christians, you know, every, really the whole world, because there is that Western philosophy that we've inherited. And um, what he considers virtues are so removed from the Christian virtues. Love isn't mentioned, friendship is mentioned, but it's more to do in terms of civility. But things like courage, 
magnanimity, great soulness, wisdom, wit, all sorts of things. But it's, it's in a way, he's almost writing, in a way he is like a bit like the self-help person. He's, he's saying to these young men, look, you're, you, you just sculpt the statue of yourself so that it's really to, the, to its best advantage. So that is, I suppose, a bit like self-help. But as I say, it's a limited clientele for virtue that he's got. Well, that's really fascinating. So it seems like you're arguing, and you do argue this in your piece, that the Greeks, the ancient Greek philosophers, are perhaps not actually the best source of advice on how we should live our lives. But you also make a broader argument in your piece about self-help as a general literary genre. And you write that self-help doesn't seem to have helped us much. Um, <laughs> as, as the Mindful Life writer at Prospect writing about mental health, I found this article absolutely fascinating for many reasons. And one of them was your ideas about self-help itself. I feel very, very mixed personally about self-help books. And one of the reasons that I feel mixed about it is that I was all, always broadly sceptical about them, very sceptical about positive thinking. But with my experience, I was diagnosed with OCD at a very young age, and I write about that in the column. And I had had various treatments of various kinds, which did help me, but they focused on my problems in quite a specific way and my symptoms in quite a specific way. And then when I was in my early 20s, I encountered a new form of therapy, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy. And there was a specific self-help book, which is called The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. And it sounds like a cliche and a, a cringy thing to say, and I promise you Russ Harris hasn't paid me to say this, but that book really has transformed my entire life and I think the reason for that was that it was the first time that I felt that my mental health and my problem was being viewed within the wider sense of how does one live well and that you couldn't disconnect my mental health symptoms which are very much related to a specific clinical disorder and they are specific in that way but that the big question of how what should you value in life and what does a life lived well look like is one that he tackles and that ACT as a therapy tackles and it and it does so in quite a unconventional way I mean the fundamental premise is that pain grief disappointment illness anxiety are inevitable features of human life and that the goal is helping people adapt to those challenges and gain what they call greater psychological flexibility in the face of those challenges rather than trying to escape those difficult feelings. And that's kind of where Russ Harris's title, The Happiness Trap, comes from. And I basically wanted to ask you what you make of that in terms of a self-help book that I'm arguing has changed my life, but also whether there's anything of the Greek potentially in those yeah. ideas. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think that is something like the Stoics and actually like like Plato in the way of not being too individualistic and you could say capitalist about it. I mean, starting with, with this self that wants to be happy and esteemed and all that. It's it's this idea, I think it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant idea. How do you fit into, into the world, the social world and, and maybe the cosmos? And and to see that that sorry, but, but human life is bloody difficult. And, and there's no point pretending otherwise. And also, well, what, what I said earlier about 
how Piliucci writes about the Stoics, and I think and I think he's right. You know, what's so damn special about you that you should be exempt from these sufferings? I think I think maybe he could be more Greek if he emphasized the fact that you aren't so significant. Yeah. And and that, that would make it more Greek. And maybe also, and I think that this is what we've lost and crave and the Stoics had is the idea that somehow the cosmos is reasonable, rational, beneficent. I think we now feel that it's all against us and that that nature is against us partly through our own fault. But that idea that actually, no, it's all fine really. Is, is something we've completely lost. And, and maybe that's why people turn to the Stoics, but and at least take from them, if not the idea that everything's all right, because it clearly isn't, the, the sense that, well, you know, you just have to put up with it. Does philosophy have a role in that question? For example, somebody like me coming forward and, and, and saying, OK, my life isn't working terribly well for me, and I need to do something about that. And I think that is the, often the people who are approaching self-help books. Does philosophy have something to say to help people like that? Or should it be not part of the picture? Well, I wonder if actually philosophy would be more helpful to people if they concentrated on philosophy itself, the history of philosophy, the various philosophical issues and everything, than on how it's going to help them. I mean, it's just one of the things that I think as a depressive and and knowing people with mental health problems is it's this terrible concentration on oneself. Oneself sort of wipes out the universe. But if you can find meaning in, in, in the universe or in some sort of intellectual pursuit like philosophy that then that will be helpful but but maybe don't sort of pull philosophy into self-help but rather pull self-help into studying philosophy coming back to your book review which is what the podcast is about I'm sorry I know I've really taken us a long way away from that at times but you establish that perhaps you don't feel that we can learn a huge amount from the Greeks in terms of self-help what can we actually learn from Greek philosophers? You appear more convinced by Carlo Rovelli's Anaximander and the Nature of Science book, for example. Yes, I, th- I think that in a way, though, that's historically helpful. I mean, that, that, that it's, I think it's a very, very clever and brilliant book. And in the way that he's, t- to a non-scientist like me, he does explain what science is. And, and in terms of well, this is how it began. Maybe Anaximander was the very first scientist. He's asking the right sort of questions. He's asking scientific questions. And and I think that sort of opens one one's eyes to the continuity of it. And he also, he's interesting, Ravelli, on relativism. So he's saying, you know, that this, this business, and it's a huge thing now, oh, well, you know, which doctors are just as good as Western medicine or something. But the fact is that there are certain truths. And I think that that, that again is what Ravelli recognises and, and stresses about Anaximander. It's not that he's just having lovely ideas or being interesting, always part of a certain culture. Fuck that. But, but, but you know, it's, it's actually, the point is he's getting at 
truth about the cosmos. And, you know, that in a way, that's what's exciting. In a way, I can say as a depressive that, that what gets me out of depression is being interested in things like philosophy and science, and not that I know anything about it. But, and it's when I'm completely sort of shut in the silly little box of myself that everything seems pointless and there seems no point in living. And finally, putting all of the Greeks to one side at this point, um, there's been a bit of a trend, we have it in prospect, of having philosophers answering day-to-day ethical problems like Julian Virgini in in our magazine, but also Kwame Anthony Appiah as the ethicist in the New York Times magazine. What do you think about that? Can philosophers be the ethical guide we need for these everyday well, that that both of those are good philosophers, and I imagine that they, I think that they, this is where a philosopher can be a guide. In a way, they can sort th- through the, the the garbage. They they can they can cut to the quick. They they can actually show us in what ways our arguments are inconsistent and what we need to be arguing about and quite what things mean. So so I imagine that Bajini and Appiah are talking about things like, let's say, consequentialism versus deontologism in in ethics. In other words, whether actions are good because of the consequences of them, whether they bring about benefits for people, or whether actions are good at source, as it were, for the intention that they're done. And also, you know, Kant's idea, if you can say, I, what I do... I can will anybody else in my situation to do. And that can be your sort of guideline because, because a lot of immorality is about making an exception for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that, 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 that the philosophers that you use are good at just sort of pointing out the difficulties of each position and of the sort of criteria that we should use for thinking about morality and making moral decisions. Thank you so much, Jane, for joining us. I think that's just about all we've got time for today. It's absolutely fascinating to hear your thoughts. Um, And for you at home, if you enjoyed this podcast, grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes writing from Guy Standing on how the crown cashes in on our seabed, Matthew Dancona on the cultural fallout from Oppenheimer, and Caroline Lucas's diary. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman and Mike Brealey. It's honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.